The reading this morning is from John 10, 22 to 30. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Kate. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Happy Mother's Day. Um, there, for, for mothers in the room, there is a small gift when you're leaving on the kids' check, uh, check-in counter. So make sure you stop by there and pick that up uh, before you take off today. Um, I want to thank, Austin's not in here right now, but I want to thank him for filling in for me last week, last minute. Um, it's I'm sure one of the most dreaded calls that he can get on a Saturday night is that I am ill. Um, but, you know, he can take a, a text and look at it for 30 minutes and see it in ways that I don't see it looking at it for weeks. So very thankful for, for him being willing to step in. That being said, we are going to actually look back at the text that we were planning to cover last week. It was this, the scripture reading last week. If you were here, you probably remember that, Acts chapter 9. I know on the, the slide that you're going to see in a moment, it says Acts chapter 1. It is not Acts chapter 1. I was tired, recovering from being ill when I made these slides, so relax. Um, I'm telling myself to relax because I, I hate that that is... Kate, you know. Um, so we're going to return to this text. I, I have it up here so that you can refresh your memory um, as we get into it. But we find here in Acts chapter 9, one of, if not the most dramatic conversion or calling stories that we find in our scriptures. It's a, a story that is soaked with the spectacular to the point that it can seem rather foreign, I think, to many of us. My guess is that most in this room did not experience anything remotely similar to this when you came to faith. Maybe you, you did, and if you did, I, I obviously don't want to discount the possibility of that. I believe uh, in the possibility of supernatural encounters, even like this, even in a disenchanted world like the one we live in, where we have sort of buffered ourselves from the supernatural. So I believe that we meet God in countless ordinary ways throughout the day, but I still also believe that God can and does break into the present moment to arrest us in dramatic ways. You know, there are stories from around the globe of individuals encountering Jesus in dreams and visions or, or having inexplicable experiences that led them to faith in Christ. I believe that that happens, and when it does, I think we rejoice in that. And yet, like many of you, I'm guessing, my experience of faith has not been nearly this dramatic at all. Um, the process through which I have and am professing total allegiance to Christ has always been a 
bit more, and when I say a bit, I mean a lot more subdued than what we read in Acts 9. I was raised in, in a Christian home, and my faith journey has really been a very gradual, lifelong process. I do not remember a single moment of conversion. I do not remember a time in my life when I was not familiar with and didn't trust, at least on some level, the gospel message of the risen Christ saving humanity. It's just always been a part of my life. Of course, that does not mean that it hasn't been a complicated journey, because it certainly has, for me, been a complicated journey of faith. I've traversed the mountaintops, spiritually speaking, but I have also descended into the valleys uh, on multiple occasions. I've walked through dark nights, and I've also rejoiced in, in bright mornings. It, it has not at all been an easy journey of faith, but the faith has always been a part of my life, even when it's um, in really subdued ways. And yet, I still believe that this story, and stories like it, with all of its marvel, can still be instructive for us. So we are going to spend the next couple of weeks reading and thinking about the conversion of this incredibly religious man, a man who just knew he was doing what his God would have wanted until an encounter with Jesus Christ completely alters his life trajectory. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at several of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. If you were with us, as the week after Easter. You probably remember that. We looked at the story of the disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, accompanied, unbeknownst to them at the time, but accompanied by Jesus, and then his identity is revealed to them as they break bread together. Or the encounter with, with Peter, where Jesus repeats three times that question to mirror Peter's threefold denial. Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Or the encounter with Thomas. Remember, Thomas receives the information. He has that input of information that Jesus has been raised from death, but he says, I, I am not going to believe until I can touch the wounds in his hands and in his side. And when he encounters Jesus, maybe you remember his response. He says, my Lord and my God. But one of the things I think we discovered as the gospel writers are telling their stories is that it is an encounter with Jesus Christ that in the end most effectively and consistently changes people. An encounter with Jesus Christ. This is something we even see in the unlikely encounter in Acts chapter 9, where this man named Saul meets Jesus. A man named Saul, the man that we now know as Paul, who authored much of the New Testament, meets and encounters Jesus. And what do we know about this man, Saul? Well, we know that he was a really religious man. He was a man who was well acquainted with the Hebrew scriptures. He knew them inside and out. By his own admission, he was a Pharisee when it came to the law. He had his religious ducks in a row, so to speak. I mean, he even had access to the high priest Caiaphas, which we discover in this story. So he is a man that is incredibly religiously and socially connected. 
And yet it wasn't from some process of in-depth formal education or acquiring new information alone or marking off items on a religious checklist that in the end changes his life. It was an encounter with Jesus Christ. A frightful one, to be sure, but an encounter nonetheless. So let's start reading this story. We're not going to get real far today, but Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at, at Damascus, so that, he, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, this is a story that Luke includes in the book of Acts a total of three times. One time in his narration of the events, which we're reading here in Acts chapter 9, and then two additional times in Paul's speeches later in the book of Acts. But the fact that Luke repeats this story three times, I think, is clearly pointing to the importance of this story um, in the early part of the church. Paul is clearly going to be a central figure in the development of the church, and so his conversion and calling is going to play an important role. But I think it's possible that also a part of the subtext of this story is that it is a constant reminder, as Luke is telling his story, that it is God who is building his church. It's not Paul, but God is the one arresting Paul in a dramatic way, stopping him in his tracks, God is the one building his church. It wasn't the genius or the skill or the charisma of the early church leaders, although there was plenty of that to go around, but it wasn't that that was responsible ultimately for growing the church or advancing the kingdom. The church grows in the most unlikely of situations because Jesus encounters individuals and changes their lives. And I think that continues to be the case. As members of the global church, we do not build the church. We are not responsible for advancing the kingdom. God alone advances his kingdom. We enter into it. We recognize the reality of God's kingdom today. We confess that Jesus is the king of this kingdom, and we even seek to participate in that kingdom, but we do not build the kingdom. We are not responsible for the progress of the church. And even when we waver in faith, even when we fail in faithfulness, God continues to build his church. This becomes, actually, I think, one of the consistent themes throughout the book of Acts. Because the early church is basically immediately experiencing great difficulty. They're experiencing internal failures and tensions that would threaten to undo the movement before it even gets off the ground. We might think of that story in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, members of the church who lie about a gift they had given and 
that story ends with their death. So there's that internal failure that would threaten to undo the progress of the early church. Or we could think of some of the tensions at play early on in the life of the church. Probably the most notable source of tension was that Jew-Gentile question. Well, how are we going to move together in unity? Are Gentile converts to the faith going to be required to follow the law of Moses? So on and so forth. So there was internal failure. There were internal tensions that were threatening to undo everything. And then as this story in Acts chapter 9 demonstrates, the church was also very quickly faced with external pressure. So there was that internal tumultuous experience, but there was also external pressure in the form of persecution, form of violence, the threat of prison and beatings, and in some cases, even martyrdom. And yet, despite all of those overwhelming difficulties, just setback after setback from the very beginning, circumstances that should have led to failure by implosion and the complete fizzling out of this movement, but instead, despite all of it, the church continues to move forward, uninhibited by those pressures and by those failures. Why? Because it is not human beings building the kingdom or making the church a success. It is God who is carrying his church into the future. And I think that's actually really good news for us as participants in the kingdom of God today. Not that we resign ourselves to failure. You know, faithfulness is essential. And, and maintaining faith, I believe, is possible over the long haul. But the success of the church, the thriving of the church, does not depend on us. I read a little book a couple of weeks ago by Annie Dillard called Holy the Firm, in which she wrote this. She said, we are most deeply asleep at the switch when we fancy we control any switches at all. And I think that's really true for the church. We are not in charge of this thing. We are participants, but it does not rise and fall on us. You know, I, I love this congregation. I, I think you know that. I, I hope you know that to be the case. I am incredibly grateful that it exists and I'm grateful for your role in this congregation and I hope it thrives for a long time and I hope to be a part of it for a long time but one day it probably won't be here this building certainly isn't going to be here which is kind of discouraging to think about after all of the energy and effort that went into this but one day it's going to crumble and even if this congregation lasts for centuries to come uninterrupted, which would be incredible, but it's always going to be comprised of new people. The point being that the success of the local church, the success and the, the forward movement of the kingdom of God does not depend on us. We are simply participating in it in these few short years in which we have the opportunity to live, but we're not responsible for it. That is simply a weight that we are, I think, unable to carry, and I, I don't think God asks us to carry that. We are called to enter into the kingdom, 
to participate it, to celebrate it, to profess our allegiance to its king, but we don't make the church move forward. The viability of the church does not depend on a single congregation. It doesn't depend on a single denomination or a single tradition. You know, I think of that statement that Jesus makes at the end of Luke 19. We read it several weeks ago during Palm Sunday. Um, But if you remember that story, Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem and the Pharisees begin to rebuke his disciples because they are quoting Psalm 118 and applying it to him. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees tell Jesus, tell your followers to cut that out. That's blasphemous. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know, these eager disciples are are only doing what they, what all of creation was created to do. But if they stop, the praises of Jesus don't stop. He says, the rocks will begin to cry out my praises. The, The rain of Christ is not dependent on our acceptance of that reign. It is not dependent on our faithfulness or on our fervor. Jesus will be glorified. He will continue to reign as king. His kingdom will always be advancing. And I think a story like this reminds us that it will be advancing even if that requires a powerful encounter whereby God completely arrests the man who was traveling to arrest followers of Jesus. To me, as I read this story, one of the most striking features of this dramatic encounter is actually the dialogue that Jesus has with Saul. It's a very short dialogue, but it's fascinating. Remember, Saul is responsible for the escalation of violence against followers of Jesus. Luke tells us here he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. He has gone as far as to get these letters of recommendation from Caiaphas, the high priest, to take to the leaders of the synagogues in Damascus. The leaders of the synagogues in Damascus wouldn't have necessarily been required to act on those letters of recommendation, but when you have the authority of the high priest at your back, the likelihood of success in Paul's mission, Saul's mission of persecution at this point is through the roof. It's sort of like hearing uh, one of our daughters declare to another one, well, mom told you to do that. It doesn't matter how much they don't want to follow that instruction. It doesn't matter even how absurd the instruction seems. Maybe they didn't even actually hear the instruction, but if there's the threat, well, the real authority here told you to do this, if that's even a possibility, well, I better oblige. Something similar, I think, is probably going on with the leaders of the synagogues in Damascus. So Saul gets these letters of recommendation to make sure that his pursuit will be successful. He goes to Damascus, and as he's traveling, he is stopped in his tracks in dramatic fashion by God himself. As Paul tells the story later, he believes he encountered the risen Christ, not just a vision, but there was an actual encounter with the risen 
Christ. And that encounter was, as we read it, troubling to say the least. A light shines from heaven. He is knocked either off of his horse or off of his feet to the ground. He becomes blind. His traveling companions see everything that's going on, although they don't experience the same debilitating side effects. But it is a dramatic and, in my opinion, quite terrifying scene. And if you stop there, knowing what has happened, what Saul has been guilty of at this point, and knowing that he is encountering Jesus, that he is encountering the the all-powerful God who created the cosmos, the expectation would probably be, well, that Jesus is about to pummel him. He he is going to bring him to the brink of personal destruction because of everything he has done. And to make matters worse, the dialogue as it gets going, Jesus says, it's not just that you're persecuting my followers as though an action like that is somehow disconnected from me. No, it is very personally connected to me. Jesus has already taught his followers in Luke chapter 10 that the one who rejects you doesn't just reject you, but they reject me as well. Jesus says here to Saul, when you persecute them, you persecute me. So Jesus knows what it is to be persecuted and rejected, and he says to Saul, this is what you are doing to me when you do it to them. So that's a I think we would agree, a pretty serious offense. To actually be guilty for of persecuting Jesus himself. And Saul is encountering that Jesus who he is persecuting. And yet in that encounter with God, Saul isn't tortured until he changes. He is confronted in a, with a very direct question. He experiences some physical side effects and, and that direct question leads to conviction we'll explore in more detail next week, but as I read the story, it almost seems that there is this gentleness and even a humility from God to Saul in this encounter. In fact, this is how the fourth century Eastern Church father, St. Ephraim of Syria and Gregory the Great, that's how they understand this story. Let's read it and see if you get a similar sense. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Again, my expectation is he's about to be physically pummeled. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It begins with a pretty simple question. The repetition of his name here at the beginning of the encounter likely is immediately ringing the alarms in Saul's brain. Oh, this is some sort of divine communication. There's a recognition of the power differential. Whoever, I don't know who this voice is, who are you, my Lord, is what Saul says, but I I do understand that whoever this voice is coming from is in authority over me. Who are you, my Lord? Not necessarily 
Saul is recognizing that Jesus is king, but he understands that whoever's speaking is in authority over him. And he's likely thinking, you know, Saul was a serious student of the Hebrew scriptures. He knew them inside and out. So he's likely processing the precedence in the scripture. If you think back to Genesis, the, the calling of Abraham, 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 that, that repeated name call. Or Moses, Moses, or even later in 1 Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. Now here in Acts chapter 9, it is directed to him, Saul, Saul. So he understands that this is a divine encounter of some sort. What is perhaps most surprising, though, is that he hasn't been tortured until he changes his mind. He has been beckoned. He has been approached. But there is a welcome. He's confronted with this very convicting question, one that beckons him into life change, but it, it begins with a simple question, not a threat of retribution. And perhaps on some level, this is an example of the humility and the kindness of God that is drawing Saul into a new reality. Perhaps this is one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul can later write to his letter in his letter to the Romans in chapter 2 where he's warning his audience not to rely on their own righteousness um, while they're at the same time dispensing judgment on others thinking well God is going to judge them but because of our covenantal relationship I am pretty much free from any sort of future judgment because I can just live how I want in the moment, and fall back on the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God. And what does Paul say? He says, no, you, you can't live in that way. He says, yes, God's kindness and patience and forbearance are enduring, and they are incredible, but you cannot presume on the riches of those things. Why? He says, don't you know that the kindness of God is meant to bring you to repentance. The kindness of God leading us to repentance. This seems to be something that Paul understood on more than just a theoretical level, but something that he experienced in a very real way in this encounter in Acts chapter 9. The kindness of God confronting him, but drawing, beckoning him to himself. A kindness that Saul clearly does not deserve. He is breathing out threats and murder, persecuting, as Jesus says, persecuting not just Christ's followers, but persecuting Jesus himself. And yet the kindness of God steps into Paul's way confronts him but draws him, beckons him to himself, and completely changes his life, saves him. You know, St. Augustine once wrote this, that the proud man would be lost forever unless the humble God found him. How true of all of us. But I don't know that I can think of a more perfect description of this encounter Paul has in Acts 9. The proud man would be lost forever unless the humble God found him.
We're going to continue looking at this story in more detail, seeing Saul's response to this encounter and his interaction with a man named Ananias. But at this point, I, I want to stop here, and I want to consider the fact that perhaps we find in this dialogue between Jesus and Saul, perhaps we find a model for engagement even in our world today. I think this story can be instructive for us because we see a picture of who our God is. So maybe this can provide a model for us and our engagement with a world, a world that could conceivably become increasingly hostile to the Christian faith for a variety of reasons. I, I think that's a possibility. And please hear me out. I'm, I'm not at all trying to play the victim card or generate sympathy because Christians are just always treated unfairly. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. Honestly, I think a lot of the cultural pushback Christians receive at times is invited, if not instigated, and much of what gets interpreted as persecutory treatment probably is not persecution. That being said, I don't think it requires a whole lot of imagination to envision cultural changes taking place that would make it difficult to be a Christian in this time and place, at least more difficult than it has been in the past. And to be honest, I actually don't know that that is in the end a bad thing for the church. Because when Christian faith is unofficially accepted as the religion of a particular culture, I think there is always the inherent danger that it will breed insincere and lukewarm faith. A faith where it is easy to acknowledge it with our lips, but that doesn't translate to the way we live because it doesn't require much sacrifice with our lives. And ultimately, I don't know that that is helpful for the health of the church. So, if that is a possibility, that at some point in our lifetimes, it will be more difficult to live the Christian life in this time and place, perhaps a story like this could be a model for us. A model for potential moments where we experience rejection or hostility. We look to the example that our God provides. So, think of Saul's encounter with Jesus. Think of God stepping in to that road, confronting Saul, meeting the proud, hostile, violent, intolerant Saul, and Jesus Christ gently beckons him into his life, calls him into some serious life change, but it is a welcome, a beckoning, a drawing him in. It is his kindness leading Saul to repentance. And perhaps that is a part of our calling, to be conduits of God's kindness, and hopefully God's kindness working through us will draw all people to repentance, just as we have been drawn by the kindness of God into a repentant life. Maybe we can learn something here as we look at our God. You know, the, the third century church father Tertullian once said that patience attracts the heathen. It is patience. Perhaps as we demonstrate God's kindness and forbearance and patience, God will continue to draw people to himself. 
So as we hold this story in our minds, we're, we're going to pick it back up next week and continue looking at it. I want to suggest today and next week that what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus is still instructive for us today, which maybe that sounds a bit terrifying. I, I don't want something like this to happen to me. I, I don't want to have a terrifying encounter. But, but the exceptional and terrifying features of this story aside, I think there is a pattern here that we would do well to pay attention to. And it is quite simple. It is this, that Christian faith involves experiencing a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. It's not just locking away information in our heads, but Christian faith involves a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And I believe that encountering Christ's beauty, the kindness, forbearance of God in Jesus Christ, I believe that continues to dramatically change people's lives today. It's changed my life. I, I want to read something that Brian Zond wrote in his book, When Everything's on Fire. He said this, it's been said that no one ever became a Christian because they lost an argument. I suspect this is true. I also suspect far more people than we imagine have become converts to Christianity for the simple reason they were charmed by the beauty of Christ. Encounter with Jesus Christ and his beauty charming us that kindness leading us to repentance. He went on to say this, if I'm hedging my bets on the survival of the Christian faith as we hurdle into a secular age, it's because the king of hearts is still so beautiful. He said, I'm willing to, head, uh, I'm willing to bet my grandchildren's faith on the beauty of Christ. I believe that's true. That Jesus Christ is still so beautiful. And it is the kindness of God in Jesus Christ, an encounter with Jesus Christ, the living and resurrected King that we sang about this morning, an encounter with the beauty of Christ, I believe still arrests and completely changes lives. This is our hope. I want to invite you to stand as we gather today around the table of our Lord. And as we do, we turn our eyes to the beauty of Christ. A beauty of Christ that in these elements reminds us that it is easy for, for the beauty of Christ to be concealed behind the ugliness of a crucifixion, Christ's death on the cross. But it is his death that is demonstrating to us the beauty of Christ, the kindness and love of our God. So as we come to the table this morning, I invite you to gaze again at the beauty of Christ. To receive and to respond to God's kindness, a kindness that is leading us out of our old life, leading us into new life, completely altering our lives. I want to say a prayer for us. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. I want to say a prayer for us by way of invitation to the table of our Lord today. Risen Christ, we invite you into this moment. 
into this moment of encounter as we gather around your body and blood. These elements that, that draw us in, that nourish us, that lead us to life. We ask that today that you would arrest us, that you would highlight areas in our lives where change is needed. And we respond today to that kindness by moving forward in repentance. Lord Jesus, we trust that you are meeting with us in this moment. And now we pray, O oh God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, is the good shepherd of your people. Grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?